Welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. Hey, we're geeking out. Carl and Richard and Richard, man, we're going to other planets today. Yeah, this has been a topic that's been banging around for a while. And uh, it started, I really wanted to just talk about, you remember we did that show with, with Rob Connery and about his, uh, his Postgres training that, that dove into the stuff around Encetilis around Saturn. Yeah, and he turned it into a novel. Yeah, it's very, very cool writing, very interesting style. But the science of Encetilis, a lot of new papers have come in, and it's all pieced together into really impacting how we think about life forming on other bodies, period. And that, that leads to a larger story. So I thought, eh, it's, this is geek out material. Although admittedly, if you look through the current roster of geek outs, we've done a lot of space stuff. Yeah. So we're probably due to go in a different direction. It is the final frontier. After all, <laughs> <laughs> it's true. And there's an awful lot of energy these days. I noticed around uh, both Elon and uh, Jeff Bezos, like, essentially they're, they're already wildly successful and you can look mm. at what they're doing in altruistic ways, but you'd also say they're trying to make new markets. Well, this is going to be a, a fun hour, but before we can get into it, we need to do this little thing called better know framework. Awesome. <laughs> All right, dude, what do you got? This do-it-yourself project lets you catch a falling muon. Oh, I love it. This is from November 2017. <laughs> Physicists at MIT have developed and released a $100 muon detector that you can build at home, allowing you to sense deep space bombardment on something that looks like a TV remote. The Cosmic <laughs> Watch is basically a little box that can detect high-energy cosmic rays is they hit the Earth's atmosphere and decay into muons. Muons hit the Earth in a light drizzle, say the device's creator, Spencer Oksani. He and the other members of the team, who I can't even pronounce, uh, of the National Center for Nuclear Research in Warsaw, as well as Janet Conrad at MIT, created an entire DIY system for building and measuring muons as they pass through the detector. So they have the link to the plans, and you can download the project code on GitHub. Nice. It uses an Arduino Nano and a silicon photomultiplier, quote, to detect scintillation light emitted from charged particles as they pass through the scintillator. Sounds awesome, huh? Everybody needs a little scintillator in your life. And of course, this is one of those devices that just gives you proof of what our atmosphere is up to. Because as soon as you get a higher altitude, go to Denver, climb a mountain, or get in an airplane... This thing's going to go berserk. You'll yeah. see the rates go way, way up. Our atmosphere does uh, serious work. Uh, I would also be interested to go in the other direction. I had the good fortune not that long ago down to go to the the Dead Sea. Wow! Uh, in in Israel, and that's a place where it's you know four hundred, five hundred feet below sea level. Right. And the side effect of that is you like you don't need sunscreen. <laughs> that extra thickness of the atmosphere literally knocks down radiation a whole other level. Wow. Well, there you go. It's super relevant what we're talking about, dude, because the atmospheres are where it's at. If you want life, you kind of need protection, although how you get that protection is really interesting. It Good is. one. Thanks. Nice fine. I think I might have to build this. This is very cool. It's going to be very cool, yeah. So that's what I got, man. Who's talking to us today? Uh, grabbed a comment off of show 1247. Dip back in the archive a bit, because that's two years ago, January 2016, when we talked about space elevators and tethers. Right which admittedly was a bit of an overwhelming topic when you really dove into the whole orbital science part of it, but uh, very interesting. And of course, the materials these days, we're getting closer and closer to it. And also ties neatly to this, you know, Bezos-Musk conversation, although not really going to be the topic long term here, but the logical way to get a space tether or a, a, a space elevator built is to create enough business in space. Hmm. So, you know, all that work they're doing on rockets really could set us up to we need more and more routine access to space that the multi-billion dollar project that would be a space elevator would yeah. actually make sense. Okay. But the comment that Drew made, admittedly a couple of years ago, he said, love this one. At first glance, it seems like a costly way to start, even though the end cost to get cargo to space would be much cheaper in the long run. One of the only ways I could see something like this getting built would be for the field of asteroid mining. Hmm. With the talks of the first trillionaire coming from whoever can start harvesting materials from asteroids, makes a system like a space elevator seem like a worthwhile investment. And thanks for all the things you guys do. Awesome. And we have done a show on, on mining asteroids. Uh, and I think one of the interesting challenges there is that 
it's easy to fall in love with the price of platinum, right? The yeah. platinum is super prevalent on these metallic asteroids. So if all you got to do is capture one of those things and you get megatons of platinum against the current price of platinum on the planet and commodities and shada, instant trillionaire, except for that part where nobody needs that much platinum. Nobody's going to buy that much platinum. <laughs> and even if they do, they're going to buy it for a heck of a lot less than what it's priced at right now. Yeah. So, you know, the, uh, the economics of collecting materials outside of the gravity well and taking it back into the gravity well is crazy. It just doesn't make any sense at all. Right. But mining asteroids for materials you need to use in space, starting to manufacture in situ, what, how, you know, I think it'll be a great milestone for our civilization when we build a spacecraft from materials in space. Right. Rather than build them down here and send them up there. It's just a very different way to think about the problem. Mm. But herein lies, again, that trap that these billionaires are pouring money into to try and break out of, which is you need to build an economy up there to have an economy up there. Yeah, yeah. That there's not, it's just not cost effective to relay between the two. So it's always going to be a battle to make that make any sense at all. Okay. Uh, but Drew, thank you so much for your comment, and we're going to hook you up with a copy of Music to Code By. And if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at donetrocks.com or via any of our social media, because we publish every show to Facebook and Google+. And if you comment there or read it on the show, we'll send you Music to Code By. Absolutely. And definitely follow us on Twitter. He's at Rich Campbell. I'm at Carl Franklin. And send us a tweet. We count the muons that pass through them. I love everything about that. It's hilarious. Do you remember we talked a little <laughs> bit about muon-catalyzed fusion? I do. In the I don't ask, show? don't give me a quiz, but I remember talking to you about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> muon-catalyzed fusion. So, you know, I knew in this conversation, Elon Musk and, and or Jeff Bezos would come up. Yes. <laughs> well, you know, they, they, they are our new rock stars in the space world. But let me drag you back to some old rock stars in the space world. Okay. So, because really, if we're going to talk about life on other planets, and we're going to talk about the definition of planet as well, you, go, you can go all the way back to 1950 and a fine gentleman by the name of Enrico Fermi. Oh, yeah. Who, who was an a, a atomic scientist, man who helped build the atomic bomb and, and was in, you know, involved in all of that. And he's the, he's the, the they named the Fermi paradox after right. him. Yeah, that's the right. The simple version of it is, where are they? <laughs> in quotes. <laughs> yeah. But in those 1950s, you know, before we've, we're just starting to launch satellites, we're starting to really look up at the sky in a different way, look into the stars a different way. And just doing the back of the napkin math, there's so many stars, there must be other civilizations out there. Where are they? Well, you know, and um, the first thing that comes to mind when I try to answer that question is, these stars are have so much space between them that... Uh, it's pro it's unlikely that anything's in our neighborhood that, yeah that you're, you're is, not wrong. has to be civilized enough you know to because time doesn't mean anything right they could be starting civilizations they could be ancient civilizations they could they'd have to be able to survive uh, and thrive long enough to be able to build interstellar spacecraft well and I think long before they build spacecraft just communicating right would be an interesting problem. So the formalization of exactly what you're describing, Carl, comes from a man by the name of Frank Drake, another rock yeah. star scientist. Right. And he formed at the first meeting of the SETI Institute. Yeah. Which is uh, this is search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, Carl Sagan was there. Right. Like, really, this was the, the core of all of it in 61. And didn't he have some math like the Drake equation or something, That's which is exactly uh, the, right. an estimate of the number of possible Everything. civilizations? <laughs> In the Milky Way. So we, the, the, the Drake equation breaks down like this. The number of intelligent life forms out there that we could communicate with, which is a great qualifier, yeah. is made up of a set of probabilities. The rate of star formation in our, in our galaxy, the fraction of those stars that have planets, yeah. the number of planets capable of supporting life, the fraction of those planets where life actually evolves, the fraction of that life that develops intelligence, right? The fraction of that life that communicates in ways that we could detect. Yeah. And then finally, L, the longevity of that communication. And he really interesting, subtle point here. 
what is the window in a civilization in which time that you have the sophistication to be able to communicate with other civilizations in a mm. form they could understand before either your civilization goes extinct or you hit a state where you come up with new forms of communication that they can't understand or communicate with. Right. You know, right now, beaming radio waves or lasers across the huge light year spanses of this galaxy, not a particularly efficient way to communicate. And you right. have to wonder, right now, we're already dabbling with things like quantum communication. How much longer before we're using a communication technology that it just doesn't work in this universe the same way. Right. Although there's an interesting angle on that, which is what if you figure out how to build a quantum radio and when you finally turn it on, there are people talking on it already. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Breaker one nine. <laughs> it's your friendly little green man from the other side of the, of the galaxy saying, stop <laughs> jabber jabbering. <laughs> <laughs> now, what's fun about, you know, when they write out Drake's equation in 1961, all of these are guesses. But science has advanced. If you think about those first values, like we now know through detailed mapping of the, of the, of the Milky Way that the rate of star formation in our galaxy is roughly three solar masses a year. So a solar mass huh. is about the size of our sun. It's just an arbitrary unit. And the rate of three solar masses does not make we mean three of our sun are born each year, but it could be, but it could be a bunch more smaller or some larger, right. one larger a star as well. But roughly by looking through nebula with infrared telescopes, we've been able to show when stars are being born within our galaxy and start to get some estimates around that. So what used to be just a raw approximation now starting to have a real number on it, although it's not a very cool number. The number is three. <laughs> does that have to be balanced against the number of stars that die? It does, although birth rates are substantially ahead of death rates. Okay. We're still in a period called the Stellarifus era, where we are turning matter into fusion balls at a fairly rapid rate. Okay. Uh, most stars, the funny thing about stars is the bigger they are, the shorter lifespan they have. Because they're burning more fuel? Well, because they burn fuel much faster. Much faster. They actually... So you get to the, your Arcturuses and such that are, are these ultra blue, ultra giant stars. They have lifespans in less than a billion years. I guess that makes sense. A big fire tends to, you know, burn hotter and faster. Burn hotter, burn brighter, burn out. They also are the engines of matter creation. Because of their size, they make a lot more matter. They tend to detonate in supernovae, which make the higher atoms. The normal star cycle goes from hydrogen to helium to lithium, beryllium, uh, all the way to iron. Iron is the first endothermic uh, uh, fusion in point, which is the end of, of most star creation. Once it's actually fused all of its atoms up to iron, then it goes out. And depending on its size, it either collapses and explodes as a nova, as a supernova, or it might just turn into a, a dwarf. There's, there's a bunch of different outcomes there. But those explosions make all the higher elements, which is why the proliferation of higher elements drops off so sharply after iron. But remember, everything, oh, yeah. Carl Sagan said it to us, we are all star stuff. Right. Right? All the creation of the stars. So those big, bright blue stars don't, don't, don't poo-poo them. They're what make a lot of the matter in the universe. But we've gone further down the Drake equation now. I mean, the, we can use telescopes to figure out the rate of star creation. That's cool. But we've also built more advanced telescopes that have allowed us to start identifying planets in orbit around other stars. Yeah, I know it. And it seems like there was a period where the, the a lot of what would you Star Trek would call them M-class planets, right? A, a lot of... Uh, <laughs> potentially habitable planets were being discovered. It was like six years ago or so. Do you remember that? Yeah, sure. That's when the Kepler Space Telescope went up, and it was specifically built to locate planets in a particular radius at particular angles around our solar system. And so it was. It had a lot of hits. It's a, you know, we're now in three, three to 4,000 planets have been discovered. Yeah. But, and now the TESS telescope just went up in the past few weeks. And it's an even better uh, telescope for scanning for planets. It covers almost the entire sky. Right. So we're, we're probably going to have, as it warms up, it takes a, a you know, better part of a year for a tele telescope like that to get 
calibrated and configured and ready to go and it starts really getting to a work mapping we're probably going to have thousands more planets that we're going to look at yeah and isn't it funny that none of our science fiction ever talked about us mapping out planets around other stars without going there right that's right we had to go there to discover we always had to fly a faster than light spacecraft to that solar system and map those planets and and sure looks like reality is that we will map all these planets long before we get there Mm. On the other hand, especially when you get into stuff like spectroscopy, where we're going to be able to actually measure the atmospheres of some of these exoplanets, what are we going to do when we find a planet in that looks roughly Earth-like and has the right atmosphere? Yeah, yeah, right. The thing is, we're not just going to fire off probes willy-nilly to every star to look for things. By the time we're really thinking about building a space probe that could fly to another star, which is an incredibly difficult problem. We're going to know a lot about that star and its planets before we go there. It's a yeah. it's a very different mindset. But back to Drake's equation, that that f of p, right, the fraction of stars that has planets. It seems, based on the data we've collected so far, that planet formation is the norm for stars. That the idea of finding a star without a planet seems much rarer right. than finding stars with planets. So yeah. that's a really big number, probabilistically, that there's lots and lots of planets. Yeah. Then you get into trickier ones, like the number of planets that can support life. Right. Now, how do we figure out if a planet can support life? Well, it has to be in the in the zone of, right. you know, where the- We actually where the, call it the Goldilocks zone, right? That's right, yeah. Not too hot, not too cold. And the Goldilocks zone is really about figuring out whether or not you can have liquid water on the surface of that planet. Yeah. Right? That is That was the measure. And that's how we sort of dictate this concept of the Goldilocks zone. Right. Now, admittedly, this is a heliocentric concept because we happen to be on a planet with liquid water on its surface. Mm. We've decided the Goldilocks zone is where we are. Right. And there are arguments that the Goldilocks zone actually extends to, to include Venus and Mars, both of which appear to have had water at certain times, but have problems with water now relative to us. Right. I mean, the whole thing is it doesn't just have to be in a particular zone, but an atmosphere has to have developed to protect the life, to make it possible for the life to thrive. And one would argue that the water availability is part of what makes that atmosphere in the first place. Yeah. But we're getting, you know, now we're going to get into fun stuff because these are the assumptions that we've always made. Yeah. Right. That they, because we are learning more about what's possible in this particular space. Uh, and and what's actually measurable one way or the other. So we've gone on from there. If we actually look back at the science that we're doing now, you can really look at it from the context of understanding the Drake equation, solving more of it. So mm-hmm. let me jump you back to the 1990s. Actually, 1989, October of 1989, the Space Shuttle Atlantis launched a space probe called Galileo. Yeah. And Galileo's mission was to study the magnetic field of Jupiter up close. But it did have, so most of its instrumentation was around magnetometers and sensors for gravitational fields. Jupiter has the strongest gravity outside of our star in the whole Mm -hmm. solar system. Mm -hmm. There is a conversation that Jupiter is actually the guardian of the solar system, that it tends to collect any stray killer asteroids right. and throw, either fling them out of the solar system or let it impact on there. In right. fact, while Galileo was orbiting Jupiter, the Schumacher-Levy comet was sucked up by Jupiter, shattered and impacted on Jupiter in impact marks that were so large they were the size of the Earth. I remember Jupiter. that, yeah. These these are things from our, you know, I don't want to say childhood, but from our earlier lives, mm-hmm. right? Earlier parts mm-hmm. of our life. Now, Galileo was a relatively large spacecraft, about the size of an F-350 pickup truck, mm-hmm. roughly six meters long, about 2,500 kilos or 5,000 pounds. So not an extraordinarily large machine. And in order to get it to Jupiter, they actually used gravity slingshot tricks. They sent it towards Venus first, and they went flew it around Venus very close so that Venus's gravity slung it to make it go faster. Right. Which seems weird. Mm. You know, I don't know if you ever looked at doesn't, you know, we conservation of energy says if I have a gravity well accelerate a spacecraft going towards a planet, it should take it all back going away from it, right? Mm-hmm. 
except that the rotation of the planet matters. The fact that you have this thing called the Oberth effect, which is at its closest point going around the planet, theoretically at its highest speed. If you just fire your thrusters a little bit, you get a big benefit further out of the, of your flight space. And if you play Kerbal Space Program, you know this. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, uh, Richard, hold that thought for just a minute while we take a moment for this very important message. Awesome. Support for .NET Rocks is brought to you by Conversational UI from Progress Telerik and Kendo UI. Conversational UI are chatbot framework agnostic user interface controls and components that enable .NET and JavaScript developers to create modern conversational chatbot experiences in their web, mobile, and desktop applications. The industry's first package set of user interface components built specifically for chatbots are available as part of Telerik's ASP.NET AJAX, ASP.NET MVC, ASP.NET Core, WinForms, WPF, Xamarin Products, and Kendo UI for jQuery, Angular, Vue, React, PHP, and JSP libraries. By implementing key UI design features such as calendars, date pickers, list views, and others that are included in the tool sets, developers will be able to improve chatbot conversation through visual elements. For more information, visit Telerik.com slash conversational dash UI. All right, and we're back. We're geeking out. Richard Campbell is talking about life on other planets. And what we've learned. You still play that game? You know, I, I haven't actually fired up Kerbal lately. Be, I've just been busy. You know, there's so much going on. I don't have time to play much anything. But it is one of my favorites. And it, it's fun to remind yourself a bit about orbital mechanics. Admittedly, Kerbal simplifies them, but it's good enough. Now, is Kerbal something that's predictable? Like, if you do the math, will it just work? Or do you actually, can you actually, you know, crash things and go off into space uh, and, you know, be lost forever? Uh, you absolutely, actually, it's one of the challenges playing Kerbal is to get yourself enough velocity to leave the Kerbal system entirely. Hmm. But uh, yeah, it's got proper residence periods. Its orbital mechanics are quite good and they're very predictable that you can literally know the optimal times to fly between uh, Kerbal and Eve, which is the equivalent of Venus. Uh, hmm. They're consistent. You can actually figure them out. It's pretty cool. I want to jump back to Galileo because... After they did the slingshot around Venus to head towards Jupiter, they also did a slingshot around Earth. So Earth's mm. a gravitational body too, and they wanted that additional boost before it slung itself out to Jupiter. And Carl Sagan himself proposed a, uh, an additional mission for Galileo on its way to Jupiter as it did its flyby of Earth. Oh yeah, to turn the camera around. It wasn't just a camera, it was all the sensors. What he wanted to try and prove was that there was life on Earth. Yeah. Because if we have this set of sensors, now they weren't intending to go looking for life on Jupiter. That was not the mission. They were studying the magnetic fields of Jupiter. Hmm. But they had these instruments that said, given these instruments, what can you measure on Earth with these sensors that would give you an indication of life? Yeah. And I, the, I mean, the cool part about NASA is that literally the raw data sets of the data they collected in the early 90s from that flyby, they're available. You can look at them themselves. Mm. But Sagan's team took almost two years of analyzing that data to actually come up with uh, an idea of how you would, right, a baseline. If, you're able to, if you're able to measure an atmosphere with a spectroscope, what, do you, what can you look for? What would you see that would indicate to you there might be life there? And yep. he really came up with two measurements that were relevant. The first was atomic oxygen. So oxygen freely in the atmosphere. And mm. the reason for that is that oxygen is hyper-reactive. It reacts with everything. And so normally there would never, oxygen would always be combined with something else. It would either be water, it might be carbon dioxide, or any other of the oxides. Right. So the only way to have atomic oxygen in, in your atmosphere is that you have something producing it constantly. And we have that. That's algae, right. that's trees. Plant life is what produces the oxygen. Yep. The other aspect that he thought was very interesting and is somewhat funnier is trace amounts, roughly 1% of methane. Yeah, I can see why that's funny. Blazing Saddles comes to mind. Absolutely, right? <laughs> so, but it, again, it's those, typically methane is formed by biological processes. There are some exceptions, but they look very different. Typically, if it's a non-biological source of ethane or methane, there's lots of it. Mm. But when you have a small amount in an oxygen environment 
That's an indicator of life. Huh. And I want you to hang on to those two measurements because this sort of flip thing that Sagan did as part of the Galileo mission becomes wildly important later. Okay. So what happened with Galileo after that? So Galileo launched in 89. It arrived in Jupiter at 1995. And it started its mapping mission. So it was studying Jupiter, but it also turned its instruments on the various moons of Jupiter. And if you remember uh, 2010, A Space Odyssey, mm. there's a moon around Jupiter called Europa. Right. And the Voyager missions had imaged Europa and saw that it was an ice ball with cracks in it. Yeah. And they thought that was interesting, but it wasn't, you know, they were only doing flybys. They're just whizzing by. They couldn't go into orbit. And here was this spacecraft, Galileo, now orbiting Jupiter, and it could take much better photos of Europa. And it did. And it measured a bunch of different aspects of Europa, and they showed that it is an ice ball, but it, the cracks in it seem to indicate that it's not frozen solid. Hmm. Now, this makes no sense. If you think in terms of the Goldilocks zone, the whole thing about the Goldilocks zone is that's where you can have liquid water. And here is this moon, this smaller body, out, uh, out at Jupiter, much further away from the sun, and it appears to have liquid water underneath a layer of ice. Right. Right. And this really kicked off a whole other level of planetary science saying, hey, gravitational fields flexing a moon can keep it warm enough to maintain liquid water under a surface of ice, enough that it actually cracks through the ice. And if you see pictures of Europa, you'll see that these cracks are kind of reddish brown. Hmm. And at the time, they really debated what that was. Today, we know they're pretty clearly they're tholins. Mm -hmm. They're compounds that are organic in a lot of respects. They, they are volatile compounds, and they're being spewed up from the subsurface sea of Europa and frozen onto the surface of the ice. But they weren't, this is the 90s and they were still figuring this stuff out. But as we've done more, like for example, the New Horizons mission to Pluto now shows that there are tholins on Pluto. Hmm. So we're, we're seeing these, what quite possibly could be precursors of life. But at that time in the 90s, they did not make those assumptions. They weren't sure at all about hmm. what that was. So they also um, took pictures of the other moons, right? Ganymede and Io? Absolutely. And Io being a wonderful moon because it was the ultimate example of uh, gravitational effect. That, that little moonlet, that teeny little moon is being flexed so hard by gravitational fields that it's almost molten. It right. spews volcanoes, <laughs> real it's volcanoes going really all fast. the time. Well, it's just, it's being flexed. It's being squished by yeah. the huge gravitational fields. Ganymede, you know, is almost the size of Mercury. It's almost planetary size, right. although it's not as interesting as Europa in terms of its uh, dynamics. And Europa is the middle one, right? So Io is yeah. the inside moon. Uh, then Europa is the middle one and Ganymede's on the outside. Well, and there's many more, you know, we also have to deal with this, you know, Callisto and, and Adrisa yeah. and Kale and so forth. Yeah. I mean, one of the challenges we've got, like that, those original four, Io, Europa, Ganymede, Callisto, mm. those are detected from the 1600s. As soon as we built telescopes and focused them on Jupiter, we could, by transit, by seeing the moons fly in front of Jupiter, yeah. see these moons, and they had those early names. You can actually, on a clear night, if it's dark enough, you can use binoculars to see Jupiter's moons. They look just like little jewels. Absolutely. But Galileo and uh, the later mission, Juno, they've mapped so many more bodies around Jupiter that we just don't teach them anymore. They figure there's 60 or 70 moons around Jupiter. Huh. So, you know, I remember when I was a kid, we were sort of taught about this. These are the planets, and Pluto was still a planet then. And these are the moons, and there was, you know, four around Jupiter and, and, and a handful around Saturn and so forth. Like, it mm. just... But as we learn more, we figure out systems are more complicated than that. Yep. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is now? Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yeah, man. It's time to use the .NET framework to detect moons around another planet. What namespace would that be? System.io, man. Oh, save me. <laughs> System.io, man. <sighs> System.io. Well, if you've got a bad hard drive, it does cause an eruption, doesn't it? <laughs> It's <laughs> oh, terrible. It is it's terrible. actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from our friends at DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. 
You know, everyone knows that DevExpress has great desktop controls, but their web tools are great also. They have this collection of HTML5 JavaScript controls called DevExtreme. And at the heart of the product line are these really powerful controls like grid, chart, pivot grid, tree list, and scheduler. But DevExtreme also comes with more than 50 touch-optimized client-side controls, data visualizers, navigators, editors, lists, dialogues, and notification controls, and general-purpose controls like a filter builder, range slider, file uploader, scroll view, and more. Now, since they're all HTML5, JavaScript, CSS, they include integrations with things like jQuery, Knockout, React, Ionic, and Angular. Plus, DevExtreme controls come with ASP.NET MVC and ASP.NET Core wrappers, so they're infinitely flexible. But don't take our word for it. Go for a test drive at dx.netrocks.com. That's dx.netrocks.com. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner is Dave Percalis. Congratulations, Dave. Yes. Golf clap for you. Golf clap for you, Dave. And Dave just won the D-Experience subscription, a big pile of awesome from our friends at DevExpress, just for being a member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And if you'd like to join that club, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join up. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December we give away a $5,000 technology shopping spree. You know, Richard, I haven't asked you in a while, what would you do with five grand? Buy a big monitor. No, that's not true. Uh, yes. <laughs> Gee, I couldn't see Gee. that coming. <laughs> da, da, da. I've already done it. Done it many times. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm actually in the midst of right now, and it's not, uh, you yeah, know, it's, it's gadgety. You know, the house has a lighting, has had lighting control systems for more than 15 years, yep. right? We do scene lighting controls and so forth. It's all part of what gives the house an aesthetic. The Lidolier Compose system that I started installing back in 2003 has been off the market now for almost 10 years. Wow. And I cannot buy parts on eBay or anything anymore. Wow. And so it's made me, you know, you don't step into this stuff lightly. I refitted the basement after the flood in 2015 with DC systems so that I could free up the Lidolier components from the basement to maintain the upstairs one because the switches fail every so often and it's getting old. Okay. But I'm, the failure rate started to increase as we're dealing with parts that are 10 plus years old. So I've actually had to go and study new lighting systems, new scene control systems based on the wiring I have. Because you don't want to tear all the walls apart, change the lighting system. And so I'm currently testing, although pretty much committed to, the new Lutron Casita Wireless. Okay. And these, the switches are about a hundred bucks a shot for proper neutral wire light switches. Mm -hmm. And you can do scene programming with them, but their scene signaling is all wireless. They use RF, so you don't need additional wiring for that, which is useful. And they're, they've got a smart hub so that you can control your lights from your phone. You can program scenes that way, which is a lot easier to program. And it interfaces with alexa and google go and, and all that so you literally are doing the star trek alexa turn on the living room lights and click on they go wow that's awesome it's it's cool it's nice it's nice step up and it's not you know it's got to have a good wife acceptance factor right that it's actually usable enough that folks that are just into gadgets for gadgets sake will still use it so wired up the living room lamps first and sure enough she started using the command via google go to turn the lights off and on in the evening, which is like, all right, they'll use it. So now as switches are failing, I'm starting to switch over to this new system bit by bit, and it'll just kind of modernize that. So is it five grand worth? Eh, pretty close. I added up all the light switches and stuff. It's probably $3,000, you know, hundred bucks a switch is 30 or so switches to be replaced. And then the scene controlling gear and a couple of repeaters and stuff. And yeah, you're there. Yep, awesome. Good gadgets. So what happened after Galileo? So Galileo detected things they didn't expect around the Jupiter system. And it's obviously already, though that was the 90s. So it's the, the Juno mission that's currently around Jupiter right now comes out of that. There's always been a proposal floating around called the Europa Clipper mission. So now that you know, you've got this sense that there's liquid water under the surface of the ice in Europa. Right. The logical thing is to put a lander down and go check that out. And so... There was something that we learned other than water about Europa. Was, didn't we detect some sort of um, some sort of life? But I'm, it wasn't any kind of 
you know, life that's, as we and know. That's in Settle Us. And let's do that topic next. Okay. I just want to sort of put a bow on what we know about Jupiter. And it's, but it's sort of interesting reality about the time spans for, for space missions and the amount of time it takes to, to build it. Okay. Because while you're, uh, while Galileo was still going on, while that mission was actually active, they launched Cassini. And Cassini right. was the mission to Saturn. And it was such an awesome spacecraft, Scott Guthrie named a little web server after it. <laughs> Cassini was a beast, way, way bigger, like size of a school bus, more than twice the size of Galileo. Yeah. And, but it, it, it too was not designed to explore for life. When the science specifications for Cassini were being developed, they were being developed off the back of the Voyager missions. So they were taking what they'd learned from the Voyager flybys to design the spacecraft. It's just there's too many too long a lead times. It takes a while to build the instruments and so forth and to propose all the science. Yeah. The one of the things that was on Cassini that was different was the Huygens probe. Okay. So Voyager had taken images of the moon Titan. And Titan is big, right? It's the largest moon in the solar system. It's about 50% bigger than our moon. It's bigger than Mercury. Uh, it's that it's planet-like. And yeah. it has a th thick, hazy atmosphere. The images showed no surface details at all. So, obviously, super interesting. So, even without any presumptions about life and so forth, these were not what these missions are about. The Huygens probe was designed to soft land on Titan. And yeah. by the way, succeeded. Mm. And you can actually, if you go, I'll, I'll include some links here, but you can see a mosaic they made of all the photos that the Huygens probe took flying down at, on a parachute to soft land on Titan. And Titan has liquid on its surface. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Except the liquid is methane and ethane. Yeah. Right, but there literally is erosion. It looks like there's rain, mm. and there. But it's much, much colder there. That's why the methane's liquid. Mm. But it is there's something going on there. Now there's also water ice there, but it's frozen hard under the ground. Right. Uh, the gravity's lower. The the methane is thick. It's essentially smog. We know of life on Earth that exists in sort of these uh, deep sea. Thermal, thermal vents. Yeah, thermal things. Yes. Where there's no life and it's extremely acidic and there's methane and there's no oxygen rather. But the, but there is life that has adapted. Yeah. these There are extremophiles. Yeah. And let's dig into that because if there is life on Europa, it's probably in that form. You've got a hot core underwater, so it may well be that kind of things. And it will produce that little bit of methane and, and traces and so forth. But this is what, what happened with Cassini is it had gone in to drop this probe on Venus and to do mapping of Saturn and take pictures of the other moons. And one of the moons it was scheduled to take pictures on was Acetylus. Yeah. And this is ties into the show we did with Rob Connery and so forth. Because what's wonderful about this is it's a reminder that real science is typically done not by Eureka, but by a, hey, that's weird. What the heck is that? Yeah. So they go to take a picture of Encetilis just for their catalog because they've got a better camera than Voyager. They'll get a cleaner photo. And it just happens to be that when they take that picture, there is a cryovolcano erupting on Encetilis. Now, Encetilis, just because it may be hard to spell from what you hear, is E-N-C-E-L-A-D-U-S. Right. It's sort of like it sounds, but there's a D, not a T. And it's really small. It is a tiny, the scientists expected it to be an ice ball. Yeah. Right? It is small. The, the total surface area of Encetilis is like a quarter of the surface area of British Columbia, which admittedly is a large province, but, you know, we're still talking yeah. 250,000 square miles. Mm -hmm. It's just not that big. It's a few hundred miles across. And so why would you think there's anything there? And that here is this eruption. There were a sort of fringe group of scientists that said that they thought that the E-ring might have been made from Encetilis, but they couldn't come up with any proposals for why that would be true. Yeah. And what's cool is NASA's reaction to seeing that cryovolcano was to rewrite the Cassini mission. Hmm. That they actually now were going to do more flyby, they weren't going to do any flybys of, of Encetilis originally, and they ended up doing dozens. And these uh, cryovolcanoes were sort of, 
water, water vapor mm -hmm. and hydrogen and stuff, right? Well, that was the question. What is, what is that spray? And, it's, and in realizing there's enough spray coming there that the E-ring of Saturn has been formed by Enceladus making a spray. So hmm. why the heck is there liquid water on what should be a teeny little ice ball? So the E-ring is huge, right? It's the second outermost ring and very wide. And it's very faint. It's yeah. just water vapor. And it looks like it's water vapor sprayed from Enceladus. And it, yeah, because Enceladus is right in the middle of what looks like a, a water path. This, well, now yeah. we've come to realize it is. You got to get the right image of Saturn to even see the E-ring. Your typical yeah. picture of Saturn with those bright rings, those are ice and rock and you don't yeah. see the e-ring but the great e-ring photo is a shot with the sun is actually on the other side of saturn from mm. the picture that that's actually a cassini picture yeah. and you can see this sort of glowing e-ring yeah i think that's on uh wikipedia yeah I'll, I'll include a link to it but it's a great great in the photos that came back from cassini mm. and we only lost cassini last year right Right. Cassini was deliberately crashed into Saturn in 2017 because they found so much interesting potential life sources in that system that now they're ter they were terrified of contaminating it by losing control of the spacecraft. So they deliberately huh. burned the spacecraft up in Saturn. That's not policy for Jupiter and so forth as well because of Europa. Yeah. The things we've learned have changed our behavior around that. So... We're back to this problem of, all right, you found something you totally didn't expect around Enceladus with these cryovolcanoes erupting out of the South Pole. Mm. What are they? And so they started flying closer and closer to Enceladus to get their spectroscopes to fly to see the plume. And that's where they started measuring water, ice, and methane. Very so cool. those exact things that, that Carl Sagan had talked about in detecting life on Earth, they were seeing the same kind of things coming out of this ice plume. Uh, from the South Pole of Enceladus. They flew so close, their closest pass with Cassini was completely crazy. They were only 50 kilometers off the surface of that moon. Wow. They were moving at 25 kilometers a second when they did it. Wow. So, and they almost lost control of the spacecraft. It flew through the plume. And actually affected its navigation, triggered instruments in a very weird way. What's funny is, as I was preparing the show, literally in the past month or so, a paper's been released as they went back over the old Galileo data. Mm -hmm. They found a similar pattern behavior from a close pass on Europa that, that Galileo did. And they're like, I think we accidentally flew through cryovolcano plume on Europa huh. with, and in, at the time they looked at the measurements, they never considered the idea of cryovolcanoes. So they thought it was just a magnetic anomaly. They sort of wrote it off as, well, that was weird and they let it go. Now they're going back and looking and go, I think we did the same thing. <laughs> huh. So it, it's interesting, you know, it's, there's a reason we keep all this science and we sort of go back and read it again with new learning and new eyes to sort of have an insight into what we've learned there. Fascinating. But you're back to this, really cool idea that there could be life underneath the surface of Enceladus. And it, like you described, it's probably extremophile type life. S these right. black smoking vents in the dark, but warm because of geothermal activity caused by gravitational flexing of uh, Enceladus being, or being in orbit around Saturn and near the other moons like Titan. All of those things would cause this this little ice ball to flex enough to keep it warm. There's an excellent graphic we'll link to about uh, how methane is trapped in Enceladus's ocean, which is under a crust of ice. Right. Yeah. So the so you have this methane ocean, and you've got a, a, a core, a rocky core on the bottom, and then there, there's sort of like a spout comes up through the ice, and you get this plume of water vapor. And so we definitely have hydrothermal vents. The, the, this particular math, and I'll get to include a link to the graphic, this particular math, the way they're describing it, this could be pure chemical reactions hmm. that are causing the methane creation. Although the argument has always been that methane, when it is chemically created, is much more prevalent. It tends yeah. to be significant portions, 20, 30, 40% of, hmm. the, uh, of the content. And in this case, it's 1% or 2%, which is more indicative of life-based formations. Wow. But it is, you know, now we're back to this whole question of 
what if life is super common? You know, jump all the way back to the Drake equation. How common right. is life on other planets? Well, if it can form around a teeny little ice ball in orbit around Saturn, yeah, then you know we need to prove this still. Then it's really, really common. Like these are interesting cases. And one of the things it's done to planetary science as a whole is it's really gone after this idea of stop thinking about the Goldilocks zone. Think about two different things. Think about magnetic fields mm. and and gravity stressors to creating mm. atmospheres. Mm -hmm. So one of the distinctions when we're looking at Venus, Earth, and Mars is that Mar Earth has a much stronger gravity field. And the side effect of that is that it keeps the solar radiation, the vast majority of it, from hitting our atmosphere. Now, Venus's weaker field meant that it probably was a water planet at one time. But as the solar wind hit its atmosphere, it tended to strip hydrogen away from the water. Hmm. And as you strip the hydrogen away, you create atomic oxygen. And atomic oxygen doesn't like being atomic oxygen, so it grabs what it can grab, and it probably grabbed carbon, and suddenly you end up with a heavy carbon dioxide atmosphere. And that's Venus. Arguably, yeah. that's Mars as well, that Mars once was had a thicker atmosphere that was wetter, but also does not have a very strong magnetic field. And the solar wind has stripped the hydrogen away from there. And now you're left with a thin atmosphere, mostly carbon dioxide. Wow. Exciting. And one of the evidences is the fact that you, when in seeing these potentially prototypical life bodies of Europa and Enceladus, the one thing they have in common is very strong magnetic fields to protect them. And a, form, a source of heat in the form of gravitational flexing. Yeah. So that yeah. sort of puts all of those pieces together. Now, let me throw one more bit in here because it's part of the fun of dealing with uh, of the understanding of planetary bodies. So we remember back in 2006 that the International Astronomical Union you know, kicked Pluto out of the Planet Club. Yeah, I believe Neil deGrasse Tyson took credit for that. Well, he was certainly in that conversation, but it really started with a, an astro astronomer called Mark Brown. Okay. Mark Brown had been studying trans-Neptunian objects, basically the space around Nep beyond Neptune where Pluto and its cousins are. And between 2001 and 2005, he found a bunch more bodies. That were Pluto-ish. Exactly. Yeah. Sedna yeah. and Eris. I mean, if Pluto was a planet, then Eris was a planet. Right. Like that's how big it was. Right. And I think there was sort of a, oh, no, we don't want to more add more planets to it. And admittedly, Pluto is, and both Eris and Pluto, all these trans-Neptunians, they are different from the other planetary bodies. Right. All of, our, all of the eight big planets that we talk about right now, they're all orbit in the same ecl ecliptical plane. They're basically in a flat plane. And there's a reason for that. The natural overtime dynamics of gravity, if you're not on this plane, you'll be flung out of the solar system or you'll impact something. Okay. Uh, the only out, the, the further reaches to the solar system, is it not impacted near as much? So do they not call them planets because they're so small? Is that really why they got downgraded? No, it's not just size. Uh, really, what they say, they came up with four basic definitions as part of this 2006 declaration. It has to orbit the sun. And it's silly and it that it said orbit the sun because that means that all those planets orbiting other stars aren't considered planets. Like that. I don't know why they said <laughs> the sun. Yeah. Like, uh, planets star within do? our star system have yeah. to orbit our sun. They, they should have sufficient mass to be nearly round or at least sphere, spheroids. All right. right. So Pluto's got two of those things happening. Absolutely. Is not a satellite of another object. It so that's why Titan wouldn't be a planet because it's in orbit Pluto around does Saturn. does fall into that orbit. category. Yeah. Also, and here's the fourth one. Has removed the debris and small objects from the area around its orbit. In other words, it has enough gravity to pull things into it. Either pull it in or fling it away. Clear out its orbital path. Okay. And this was what Pluto, they thought, had not done. But okay. there's still a lot of stuff in its orbital path. And so they gave a new categorization, the dwarf planet. And so right. Pluto would fall into that and Eris would follow that. And they even put Ceres, which is the largest asteroid in the asteroid belt. Well, the Ceres and hmm. Vesta in that category as well. Hmm. Now... There is challenges happening to this. So 
the I, I nothing I got nothing bad to say about the IAU. They study they've taught us a lot of stuff. They studied a lot of things. They look at stars, you know. Planets are not actually their real focus, but there is a group of scientists called planetary scientists. Go figure. Yeah, then they focus on the stuff we've just been talking about, about how ecologies work in different planets and so forth. And last year, they put out a paper where they said, we got to rework the definition of planet because this is silly. Right. And, they, and, and actually, what they did was went with a much simpler definition. The first thing they said is, why do you care about orbit? Why is that important in any way? Now that we've already demonstrated that how far away you orbit a sun does not affect the, the liquid water there's many more ways to get liquid water your goldilocks zone doesn't really matter there's other solutions to that why shouldn't a planet definition be a intrinsic properties of the body itself rather than its orbit so their official statement would be that a planet is a substellar mass body that has never undergone nuclear fusion and has sufficient self-gravitation to assume a spheroid shape adequately described by a triaxial ellipsoid, regardless of its orbital parameters. I was just going to say that. You want a simple version? Yeah. Round objects in space that are smaller than stars. Okay. <laughs> you like that? Uh, that's much simplified, yes. But now, if that's a planet, it can pull itself into a round shape, and it's smaller than a star, then what are implanet our planets in our solar system? It's all of them, right? Pluto is a planet, right. Titan's a planet, Enceladus is a planet, mm. Europa is a planet, Ganymede's a planet. In other words, it's too broad a definition. I don't know if that's true. I think it's actually a good idea. Because the interesting thing about planets is what do they do from there? What are the intrinsic aspects of the body? How do you resolve things? Well, why does Mercury get a pass as a planet because it happens to orbit the sun and Titan doesn't when it's actually well, bigger? Well, you just said it, I think. I mean, planets orbit the sun and the well, things that orbit the planets are moons. Well, we've been using that definition. The question is, does it make any sense? Is it actually a good definition? Why, why wouldn't it be? I mean... It, it tells us what they orbit. I mean, if, if if Titan is a planet, how do you know what it orbits? Just from the definition, you don't. Yeah. Well, I guess that's the question: is does what it orbit matters in its definition? Why would you care? Isn't the interesting part its intrinsic properties that planets do things that they have systems? Why not just come up with a more general word for all of the bodies in the solar system? Why why ha why redefine something we already have clearly used and relied upon? Because it's not a clear definition and it's unreliable? Because, so why wouldn't we just make up a new word? Uh, well, be, the old word works pretty good. We just have to make a better definition. I disagree. Right? And that's exactly what they're, they're going at. But you, you, you get the problem, right? Yeah, we, sure. We've learned more. I mean, admittedly, the IAU decision was 2006. So 12 years later, or 11 years later. I mean, basically what you're doing is you're redefining stuff. So now you're adding complexity to any discussion anyone's going to ever have. When you say planet, what do you mean? But if we come up with a new word like, like planetoid, I mean, that is already a word. But, you know, come up with some, you know, squant stiff. I don't know. <laughs> you know, some new word that just applies to everybody in the in the solar system then we know exactly what that is well the planetary scientists want to study titan the same way they study mars right and so they they think having the same definition makes a heck of a lot more sense because the process of doing the study is essentially the same planetary science the process of looking at the ecology and operations and geology of a of a of a body they want to there stop you, saying body so you they just want to use the right word you use body of a body, but then you say, well, when you mean say body, what do you mean? So they're trying to make it into planet so yeah. that you use the same term for both. And I'm having a tough time arguing with them. I think it's very reasonable. When you when when I give you descriptions of Titan and Mars, you quite uh, quite possibly would say Titan seems more planet-like than Mars does. Yeah. So it's... We're in an interesting place. We know more. Our science is continuing to advance. We're answering pieces of the Drake equation further down the path. And, and so we're trying to reshape these terms. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm you know, happy that this is going on. I don't know all the answers to it. I'm keen on it. I mean, one of the interesting things now is we get back to the Drake's equation and say, well, every number we can add to this so far, 
that the prevalence of life seems to be super common. We're still back to Fermi's paradox. Where are they? Right. So what's the gate? Is there something we haven't looked at closely yet enough to really say, this is what limits the creation of life and more importantly, intelligent life. Yeah. And I think the big new one are magnetic fields. The best okay. understanding we have about the reason the Earth's magnetic field is so powerful really has to do with Luna, with our moon. Mm -hmm. So our moon is acting as an energizer of our metallic core, that it's almost like the, the hand that spins the basketball balanced on a fingertip. <laughs> yeah. That by orbiting relatively closely and being a very large moon proportioned to our, uh, the mass of the planet, we're keeping that dynamo inside of our planet running hard mm. so that it builds a big magnetic field that protects our atmosphere. Okay. And that might be the rare thing that in the, in order to have advanced life or life to really evolve a long way beyond this under the ice sort of black smoker uh, evolution, you're going to need a super strong magnetic field from other sources. And mm. that may be moons. We, yeah. Now you have a hypothesis. Now you have to test it. How do you build instruments to start measuring moons mm. orbiting planets around other stars? Mm-hmm and see how common that is. We now know planets are common, but what if moons need to be common as well for them to be life? And that might be the rarity. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating to think of, Mr. Campbell. What do you think? I mean, do you think that we will make contact within our lifetime? Um, it seems extremely unlikely. Yeah. Right, it, just for the distances involved. Unless, you know, the, our best shot is the, we get the quantum radio working and yeah, they're already talking there. The more likely thing if there's other civilizations functioning elsewhere in, in the galaxy is that they are advanced. We're in this tiny little window of time where we can really think about that problem yeah. and we don't have much technology around it. Uh, my, the far more fascinating thing about the hockey stick of technology as we accelerate up this line is this idea that of the singularity, that we'll... Right. The distance between being able to consider flying to other stars and being able to make your own universe are not that far apart. Yeah. And so one of the postulations about where are the other civilizations is that they left. That they fly up that hockey stick of technology and they hit a point where if they don't kill themselves and lend themselves extinct, they actually become their own gods. They create new universes and off they go. Right. You know, so much of our understanding of our universe, of our star systems and how all that works is actually the study of the proton, of looking at our very smallest things and understanding things like quantum physics. And so as that minute understanding expands, our ability to manipulate the larger reality gets stronger to the point where we make our own things, we go our own way, we communicate in different ways, we essentially leave this physical realm we transcend into something else mm. copy mm. our our consciousness into into machines and send them into different dimensions like now that's just that. crazy talk i'm, I'm with you <laughs> but we are on a ride that in a span of a hundred years you know part of that drake's yeah. equation was how long does a civilization exist able to communicate in a form we can communicate with what if the time span between that and transcendence or destruction is only 100 years. Then the chances of a civilization being able to communicate with us at light speed, only 100 light years away, really low. Mm. It's going to be nothing more than a yell out, we were here, and it's gone. Pretty cool. That's what I got, man. That's a great show. I'm sure we're going to get a lot of great comments on it. Thank you for doing the research, Richard. It's always a pleasure to do a geek out with you. Always good fun. And uh, yeah, please feed your comments. Jump in on this debate. What is planet supposed to be? Is there life out there? Seems like a waste of space if there isn't. But maybe they come and go too quickly. I say we make up a new word. Richard doesn't. <sighs> I disagree. <laughs> what do you think? Let us know. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, 
a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and of course in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a